Welcome to Data Dialogues from Equifax, a podcast about how data-driven insights can power smarter business decisions. Hello, and welcome to Data Dialogues from Equifax, a podcast where we connect with business leaders to hear how they use data to meet their business goals. I'm Tricia Gabberty, Vice President of Marketing at Equifax and the host of today's podcast. Our guest for today actually hails from the halls of academia. Alice Sue is the Associate Director at the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford University. Welcome, Alice. Thank you for having me. The topic we'll cover today is data quality, but before we get there, can you just give us a little bit of your background and your role at Stanford? Of course. Um, As you mentioned, I'm at the Center for Deliberative Democracy at Stanford. Um, We are in the business of um, helping governments, policymakers consult the public on public policy issues and ensuring that the public is providing informed opinions. So not just top of the head opinions and you know, out of conventional polling, but um, going through an entire public consultation process where they get information, discuss with fellow um, citizens, and engage with experts so that they can have thorough information before coming to their opinions. And we do this around the world on a variety of topics and now online. So your research helps to build that bridge to kind of get everybody talking in one room, so to speak. When we first met, we chatted a bit about data quality. So I consulted Wikipedia, who gave the following as a definition of data quality. Data quality refers to the state of quantitative and qualitative information, and data is generally considered high quality if it's fit for its intended uses in operations, decision-making, and planning. For our audience, can you expand a little bit on your definition of data quality, and how does one deem data as well quality? Excellent question. And the definition that you just read, um, in particular, the key words about using it for its intended purpose, that is really crucial because data quality, at least in public opinion polling, we have to make sure that we're using, um, not only gathering the population accurately, but we're using it to generalize to the right population. So if we're intending to represent the entire country, then we need to get a survey that actually represents the entire country. And that means good random representative sampling of the national population. And the most current example, you know, the the presidential election is at the top of our minds. And a lot of people are wondering, did the polls get it wrong yet again? What, what happened to you know certain types of voters? Was the modeling wrong? Did people account for education? And, and the finger pointing goes on and on. And for us, really, it's tr- really trying to understand if we're a few points off here and there and the election is you know on the margins, we have to be really careful in making sure that what we're reporting is actually accurate. 
And it's not to say the polls are wrong, but I think we have to reevaluate the methodologies that we're currently using. Um, You know, from 2016, the pollsters decided to wait for education because um, it was found that less educated voters um, were less likely to answer the phones. So they made that wait. But, you know, again, we're faced with did the polls do something wrong? And here um, now people are saying that it's perhaps conservative voters are not as likely to answer the phones. And this time around, um, the liberal um, voters that are more liberal were more excited to answer the phone and contribute um, to the, uh, the, the surveys. So um, there's, there's a lot in question about what data quality is, but I think the bottom line really is making sure that you are gathering information from the sample that you want to generalize to. So Alice, you packed a lot in there. And I guess primarily what I heard was around the noise in the data. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Just a quick aside from my end, you know, I spent my entire career in marketing and having sat in on focus groups, there's typically that loud voice in the room, right? That one that tends to serve as the leader and send the t- set the tone. And then there's others who maybe are a little too timid to share their point of view or maybe just kind of go along with the status quo. Is that something that's considered when you go out and do your surveys? And how should any marketer or research associate approach that dominant voice? Yeah, it's a really good question. And this is where we have to do extensive training with the interviewers that are executing those surveys to um, when we get the actual respondent in front of us, having the skill and tactics to either keep them on the phone or keep them there in person is, is really hard. It takes a combination of, you know, significant people mm-hmm. skills, um, a little bit of craftiness. So there's a lot of training that goes into it and putting together the, the survey and, Organizing the structure of how the questions are rolled out is also extremely important in engaging the respondents to stay on till the end. So there's both an art and science to the whole process. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Like I said, it's surprising what data can show sometimes, especially through research. Surprises come up, anomalies come up, and then people start to dig in a little bit to say, hey, why did that happen? That's not the answer I thought I was going to see, or it's not mapping to the hypothesis. So I guess my next question would be around that same trail of thought. Being that your job involves surveys, hearing directly from the public on a wide range of topics, do you overlay your research with any other data, external data that may help you to either normalize what you get back or give more of a contextual view? So for instance, if you were measuring consumer confidence, say, would you turn to income data or economic data at a a zip level or a household level to try to paint a fuller picture? How do you accommodate for some of the raw data that you get back? For us, um, we don't do that a lot. And the reason being actually is because we're at a um, academic institution where we have an institutional review board that makes sure that we have, um, we keep the privacy of all of our respondents. We actually uh, have zero um, private um, information, emails, contacts, addresses, which includes, you know, their zip codes and things like that. And it's often quite difficult to 
assign kind of individual traits to people we um, have surveyed. And it, it, we study a lot of mo- or most of our, our results in aggregate. I think the other key point here is when we do our studies, they're generally with a national representative sample. So we're trying to generalize to the rest of the public rather than, say, um, generalizing to a certain cohort of the population um, uh, that, you know, is looking to buy one thing or another. Um, I think it's a different strategy. Uh, so I think from from our perspective, when we're trying to generalize to a national population, we, we always use the standard of having random sampling or stratified random sampling um, so that we can have the most accurate um, population represented. So I would say, you know, going overlaying other types of data or linking it to other publicly available data, um, we rarely do that. Um, And not to say that we haven't, but we rarely do that. And we generally rely on all the data that is captured at that um, moment in time uh, when we ask the respondents. You're also referring to something that I call the privacy conundrum. At Equifax, we have a mix of survey and direct measure data. Certainly ours is compliant. We don't hold any private information that's passed to anyone. But as a marketer, that always strikes me as a bit of a contradiction. When you look on Instagram and you see that someone's adopted a puppy and you even know the puppy's name and the breeder they got it from, or you go on Facebook and you see that Joey graduated and there are all his friends who are socially distancing at his party. So you have here a public that is more than willing to share so much of their intimate slices of their private life. But then you need to balance that with privacy, respecting not only laws and regulation, but also that big brother creepy factor. So taking the Stanford hat off for a moment and as a researcher on your own, how do you find striking that balance? Or could you submit your own perspective on how much does the public really want and value that privacy versus how much they see it as being totally fine, open kimono, happy to give my data, using my data as a currency type thing? That is a really hard question. If we knew how to answer that, Trisha, um, we would make a lot of money. Um, um, it's it's a hard question because even in surveys, Pew Research or you know other reputable survey outlets that have regularly asked consumers and the general public about their comfort level with sharing data um, and their concern with sharing data. Oftentimes, what they self-report may not be reflective of their behavior. And I say this because there are um, surveys out there that say, you know, a majority of the country is very concerned with uh, their privacy and how their data is shared. But um, when you ask them, uh, well, how many of you go into the default settings of certain social media platforms or browsers and change those default settings? You know, I can probably imagine maybe none of them have. I think there is a huge gap between the perception of how someone um, is is um, believing how important privacy is to themselves versus their actions. And this is a big question as to whether it is because platforms uh, or businesses have not made these 
abilities to change their settings more obvious or easier? Or is it something related to education and understanding of what it actually means if you don't change your default settings or maybe they don't know what the default settings are? My view really is if we're looking to have a society that really understands how to control um, their own information that's being shared, then maybe we need all businesses and platforms, you know, let individuals decide what their default settings are. Or maybe it's that default settings are the most restrictive they can be and users have to decide how much data they want to share one checkbox at a time. Uh, It's a really difficult question to ask because who's going to say no to privacy? Uh, I don't think anyone is going to explicitly say, take all the information. Uh, the question really is, you know, how does how does that turn into action and behavior? So you're saying a more opt-in or opt-out approach would probably be best for serving all of us consumers. I mean, business people, we're consumers also. So switching gears just slightly, truth said is the new buzzword and really knowing the efficacy of your data and where it comes from. Many marketers and brands rely on their ad agencies or consultancies to source their data. And sometimes I'm surprised to learn that the marketer isn't as closely monitoring that quality. What would you suggest marketers or data analysts need to be aware of when they're choosing a data provider? What an excellent question. Um, And here is, I feel like the natural way for me to plug in for Neutronian and their desire to really be sort of the moodies of, of data quality, providing certification score of, of a kind to tell people that are buying data whether the data is sourced from verifiable places, whether they are of a certain quality. And I think it's, it's really about time that the industry has come to terms that it's it really needs to verify its sources. And, you know, there's just you know, the data breaches and privacy scandals that are always making headlines. It's, it's whenever that happens that the industry says, okay, we might need to do something about it. But once that kind of passes, everyone's urgency passes. Um, but I have to say now with... Um, in California, at, at, um, at least with CCPA and now with the passage of Prop 24, there's definitely more awareness, at least in California, that data has to come from somewhere. And we should definitely try to make sure that people are opting in. And if they're opting in, then this data is probably of higher quality than those data that may not require opt-in. So it's uh, it's going to be a long fight. <laughs> So you're bringing up the point of consent, right? And me wanting to participate and me wanting to be a part of that data ecosystem voluntarily versus involuntarily. And yet I think there's also the case to be made for we've become a very spoiled society and that how dare Netflix not know when to serve me up X when I just watched Y. So I think we've been training the marketer or the algorithms in our tastes and our behaviors, and then they feed it back to us. And when they get it wrong, we're disappointed in the brand. So there's that sort of cycle there. And just continuing on that vein, are there known data sources and not naming names, but brands or agencies or 
any buyer of data should avoid? In other words, are there tactics or measurement schemes that serve as flags to poor or dubious quality data? If the seller is not able to give you a straight answer one way or another, then maybe you shouldn't be buying from them. Um, And I guess, and, and, and that's also the importance of thinking about first party data and you know, understanding where the, the streams of data comes from and asking questions, the right questions, you know, how often is data refreshed? Uh, how often um, are, you know, is a certain percentage of the, the data verified? I think there are some just basic common sense questions that people should be asking before they purchase data and not just assume that the seller will do all the work for you. In a previous conversation, you mentioned that there are studies regarding CCPA effectiveness, and that indicated only a small percentage of people actually opt out. Can you talk a little about that? Is it people not really understanding what they're signing up for? You know, honestly, I think it's um, there. Even I think the, all of us in in you know immersed in this industry are very aware of CCPA because we we have to you know abide by it. Um, and so we know it very well, but for the average consumer and, and that's just, you know, buying something off the web, I, I don't think they're very aware of what has happened. Maybe they noticed a pop-up that asked for another, asked you to agree to yet another set of terms of service. And, um, I, I don't think consumers have been educated about what it actually means. And I I think that's where, Prop 24 came in where they added in, well, do not sell and share data. And they added that aspect um, that in there to not share data as well. I still think that even after Prop 24, it sounds great to have everything protected. And I, I'm not sure, you know, even what effect Prop 24 will have. It's just, you know, more work for everyone that is, um, uh, operating websites and, and consumer sites, I think there still remains to be done a lot of education amongst the general public on um, why uh, these consents exist and um, what it means when you opt in, what it means when you opt out. I I don't think people are really spending the time to understand that when they go on and make a purchase to buy a pair of shoes. No, and I agree with you. I think there has to be shared responsibility and accountability. However, how many times have you had those terms and conditions pop up and you scroll to the bottom and you say, sure, I'll click agree. And then you move on because it can be daunting with all that legalese. Getting back to some of the polling that you've been doing in the weeks that were leading up to the recent election, you had mentioned to me about how we as consumers tend to look at the polls and just see numbers, maybe just see headlines. Yet the media outlets are going for that shock factor, right? So as a consumer, we should also be concerned about the data that we read, right? We should be probing and not leaving it up to others to explain it to us. So I'd love to hear your perspective on what a consumer should consider when reading any research based um, on surveys and polls and not just political ones. I ask this because while I'm a business to business marketer, I'm also a consumer. And I think it would be untrue to say that any business person um, doesn't approach their business somewhat informed by their consumer behavior. What should I be looking for when I see media polls or surveys or factoids that come up in search papers or in headlines? I think first off, just touching on the elections and the polls, 
every poll nowadays reports you know their plus or minus um, error percentage. Usually, that's you know in fine print underneath the results, and actually not often reported in in you know television or um, or other places. And sometimes, depending on the survey outlet. Um, they may have a plus or a minus, you know, above 4%. I think I read one outlet had a plus minus error percentage of 9%. And that would, you know, that's kind of ridiculous, especially if you're reporting on an election that's, you know, being decided by one or 2%. And I think that the consumers and even media outlets are responsible. They, they don't share this information you know, going a level deeper when we do surveys, whether for politics or for marketing purposes, the question is, well, how many people were actually surveyed? Was it 10, 20? Was it 100 or 1,000? For the survey, you know, was it the actual population you want to represent? So if a survey is talking about those that are, you know, 18, 24, or they're talking about Gen Z, or talking about representing, you know, in, um, you know, those over 65, was that survey actually done for that group of people? Or, you know, sometimes um, survey outlets may you know, do a survey of a larger population and then subset it um, and say, hey, this population from there, maybe 20 people said this. And all of these details um, are never asked explicitly when uh, survey data is um, being reported. And it's really unfortunate. Um, I, I, very reputable survey organizations will report everything. But um, nowadays, anyone can go out and do a survey. So I think as consumers of market research and data and polls and all this type of information, we have to if we're interested in it and we're going to consume it, um, we should definitely do a little bit more of a searching before we actually process and, and store it away in our head um, and accept these as facts. That is, a, I think that's definitely a shared responsibility on our end as consumers of this information. Yeah, I agree. That's an excellent point. And I think it goes back to the buyer beware and all those old things they teach you back in business school. As a consumer, I have to be just as diligent about understanding the data about myself that I'm giving away, as well as questioning what I'm consuming to get that clarity. So from what you're saying, it sounds like the witness can be led. And I've seen some headlines come up with a certain factoid or research poll that said something. And you look at it and you wonder, you know, what is that source? It's some unknown organization. Who are they? How was the survey done? Was it done on the street? Was it done online? And then back to that question of just how much noise is in there. How much of the slanting of the data can actually be had? So that's why I love the whole deliberative democracy that you're representing to kind of say, we're going to give this action. Here's something that's truly fair and balanced to the best of your abilities. Can I touch back on something you said earlier about um, the recommender engines that we have on all of our <laughs> different sites? You know, your Amazon, how we expect um, these sites to know us. And it's it's really that conundrum. And I wanted to share further, it has uh, positives and negatives. And the other negative I was thinking about is also the fact that it blinds us to other sources. And I'm thinking about news sources. So, you know, on the one hand, if 
I'm on a site and, you know, the, the recommending engine is telling me, oh, you bought these last time, you might like these. That's great. But if I'm on a news source, um, looking at news sites or trying to better understand the world, and it keeps recommending me to only look at MSNBC or CNN, and I'm never getting exposed to conservative platforms or information about other policy issues or something related, then um, it produces and what a lot of researchers are saying that polarization and extremity in our society that um, these days. So it is a conundrum, you know, and on one hand, it's great for consumers and and retailers to really help us buy more and buy more of the things we like. But at the same time, when we use it for politics and news, um, it really drives us into this echo chamber that many people are seeing is, you know, have, causing havoc in, in our society. That makes sense. And it's almost like when you're a child and your mother is saying, just try this vegetable, just try it. We can definitely get seduced into these bubbles that will cause us to not even want to entertain what the other side might be saying or looking like or doing. And yet by trying it, you could recognize that there are central things on central platforms that we both agree on and can align on. So I think that all circles back to what you were saying about education. And I do think it's the responsibility of both the brand and the consumer to be aware, to ensure that we're not, as we said, leading the witness and that we're not ourselves being ignorant to what we can do to better understand the data that we're consuming and the data that we're giving away. My final question was going to be about what should marketers keep in mind when reading research that's gathered through Gen Z? There's so many apps out there, and I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that very interesting generation. A very popular uh, Gen Z market intelligence company is Zebra IQ, and they the founder um, has been called the Whisperer, the Gen Z Whisperer, and it's quite a unique app that they've created. It's like a, uh, a combination of a market research app, but users um, are filling out survey questions, but playing games at the same time, uh, which makes it fun for them to provide these personal, infor personal information um, while gaining points and gaining rewards. And they've been so successful. Um, they've been publishing um, their market intelligence the last years. And um, many marketers are relying and, and trust their uh, data source for um, serving the Gen Z population. So I think there's, you know, with each generation, um, we face different problems. And it seems perhaps Gen Z may not have the privacy issues or the, you know, restrictions that, you know, other generations are concerned about. And so it begs the question, what does that mean for our data dialogue? <laughs> For the next generation, you know, how, how does it change? Maybe everything we're talking about is, it doesn't really matter to them. And, and they have totally other just, um, you know, other concerns about data. Uh, I guess it would be cliche to say more research needs to be done on this. Alice, this has been terrific. You've given me so much food for thought. I'll definitely be taking a much closer look at polls and research as I continue to read. But I want to thank you so much for being our guest today. It was wonderful hearing from you and really learning about what goes into gathering this data. 
and how as consumers and businesses, we both play a part in making sure that the data is in fact quality. So thanks again so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Data Dialogues from Equifax. If you like what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button to be notified of future episodes and leave us a review. To keep our legal team happy, we'd like to remind you that nothing in this podcast is legal advice, and we recommend to always consult with your own legal representative to ensure your data use is handled properly. Also, the opinions and views expressed in the podcast are not intended as hard facts and advice. They're also not necessarily the views of Equifax. Equifax.